We're continuing our study through the Old Testament. We've been going from Genesis through and we're up to 1 Samuel chapter 31 today. At this point in time, we've got David. He's coming, he has come back from his backslidden state. So that's great news. Uh, we saw last time that everything came crashing down on him and that's what the Lord used to bring him back to, back to himself. And sometimes that's what the Lord has to do to bring us back, you know, when we've drifted so far away from him and we need kind of a major wake-up call that we might come back to our senses. But God is so faithful and he loves us so much, you know, that if he has to rock our world and even if he has to turn it upside down and shake it like one of those old etch-a-sketch, you know, he will do that if that's what it takes to bring us back to our senses. And uh, once we come back to the Lord, you know, we find out that we regret we ever left him in the first place. You know, isn't that true? So as we continue in our study with 1 Samuel, the storyline uh, jumps back to King Saul. You know, we've been kind of going back and forth between David and then King Saul and what's going on. So, so now we jump back to him at this point. So 1 Samuel chapter 31, look down to verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. And the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines, and they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So this war that it talks about here, the Philistines attacking Israel, it's been brewing for a while. And it was mentioned earlier in 1 Samuel, if you want to look back for a second at chapter 8, verse 1, kind of talks about it starting to stir up there. It says in 1 Samuel 28, verse 1, now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. So it was starting back then. Uh, jump over to chapter 29 and verse 1. It says, Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. So all these preparations have been made. The armies were gathering. They're finding their strategic places. And now we see this in chapter 31 that the Philistines are the ones who come in and they're the ones starting the attack. Uh, it's a sad picture here because it says the men of Israel fled before them and they fell slain on Mount Yoboah. So the Lord gives us basically the whole battle almost in one verse. It was not good for Israel. It's a sad, a sad day in their history. So verse 2 goes on. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Mount Shishua, Saul's sons. So the Philistines at this point, they stopped chasing the rest of the Israelites and they turned all of their attention on killing Saul and his sons. And their goal was to destroy the leadership of Israel. So you think about this. Our enemy would love to destroy the church leadership too. <laughs> he knows if you can bring down the leadership, you can severely weaken the troops. So please pray for church leaders because the enemy is on the attack and he is trying to do some damage there. He's constantly looking for a way to get in and cause some problems there. So you come down to verse 3 as it goes on. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. So the, the words that Samuel had spoken back in chapter 28, uh, down to verse, I think it was 19, are being fulfilled here. If you want to look back to that, I'll read that to you. Just turn back a couple of pages. And uh, the, uh, here, here is uh, 
Samuel speaking to uh, Saul as Saul decided to bring him back from the dead. And uh, the Lord uh, allowed this to take place so Saul could hear this. But in verse 18 of 1 Samuel 28, he says, Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And that's happening right here at this battle. And then it goes on and says, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. So they're going to go to the place of the dead. He said, the Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. So again, this is a very sad moment in the history of Israel. This is being fulfilled, we saw in chapter 31 here. And the lesson we get from this is God's word is true. You know, when he says things, he means them. He told King Saul to obey. King Saul refused to obey completely. And therefore, the judgment was coming upon him. And now that judgment that was prophesied is now coming to, to be. So when the Lord says things, he means them. When he predicts that something's going to happen in his word, you can rest assured that it will happen. So don't ever doubt what God says in his word. We can take it and stand on it because it is true and the Lord is very faithful to his word. So back in chapter 31 and down to verse 4, we see that, that Saul has been wounded here uh, by these archers. And it says, Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it. And here's his reasoning. Lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. And that means the, the abusing there means they might torture him. So Saul did not want to be tortured. He knew how ruthless the Philistines were. So he feared what they would do to him if they captured him alive. So he knows he's, he's mortally wounded. He's already dying, but he doesn't want to be there when the, the enemy soldiers find him uh, for fear of what they may, may do to him. So the rest of verse 4, it says, but his armor bearer would not. So Saul has been, he basically is, is pleading with him, de demanding that he, he takes his life, and the armor bearer is not going to do it. This guy has been trained to protect him and to even, you know, take a bullet for him, so to speak. So he's not going to step in and take his life. It says here, but his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore, Saul took a sword and he fell on it. So his armor bearer here, he was, he was way too afraid to kill King Saul. He had probably been at Saul's side, you know, every time that David refused to harm Saul. And he probably heard David's words about, I will not harm God's anointed king. So this armor bearer was not about to cross that line. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. So verse 5, it says, when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Now, I'm not sure what this armor bearer was thinking at this point. You know, was he afraid of being captured by the Philistines and, and maybe afraid that they might take their frustrations out on him since they couldn't get to King Saul before he died and they thought, well, this is the next best thing, so we're going to, you know, take it out on him and, and be very cruel to him. He might have been afraid of that torture and uh, they might have had extra torture even, you know, if they find Saul was dead and they're thinking, oh, man, there's a really bad now. So I don't know. 
Or was he, or the, this guy, was he also maybe afraid that if he lived and the Israelites, you know, found out that Saul was still alive when he was there, that, that maybe they would blame him for not protecting King Saul, and then he's going to get executed by them. So I don't know, but he was afraid maybe even of facing shame, you know, that he didn't do his job. I, I'm not sure what was all running through his mind. Some people have suggested that he was just being loyal to Saul and kind of like the captain going down with the ship, you know. Uh, either way, he decided to end his life in the same way that Saul did. And look at verse 6. It says, so Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men, that's probably talking about all his very close men, the bodyguards and everything, they died together that same day. Now, we wanna, we're going to see this a few times here, but you know, this all could have been avoided by obedience. You know, if Saul had just been obedient to the Lord all the time that he was king, we would not have this story right here. It would be a whole different story on, based on obedience, not on his disobedience. So it goes on. It says in verse 7, When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley. So these are guys that were not in the fight per se, but they lived and could see some things from where they were, their standpoint. And it says, and those who were on the other side of the Jordan, when these guys saw that the men of Israel had fled, so the army took off when they realized we're, we're done for. They took off running. Uh, some of them got killed, but some got away. But it says, when they saw the men of Israel had fled, and they also saw that Saul and his sons were dead. Here's what their response was. They forsook the cities and they fled. And it says, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So what caused all of these people to forsake their cities and the lives that they once knew? You know, it was what they saw. And it's, it's actually caused such a panic, you know, that they, they must have thought, we got to grab what we can and run for our lives. So that's what they did. Wow, so sad to see this going on with God's people. And I don't know if you notice this, but there's a very interesting domino effect that's going on here. First, the Philistines attacked. Israel fled. They took off. Then the Philistines turned their attention to chasing down Saul and his sons. After they kill his sons... You know, and Saul was severely wounded by an arrow or arrows. It mentions archers, plural there. So he could have had a couple of arrows in him and he knew he couldn't win. So he then decides to take his own life. Then his actions cause his armor bearer to take his own life. Then when the Israelites who were not in the battle saw how badly Israel was defeated and the king was now dead, they fled from their own cities and left them behind. They just ran for their lives. Very interesting domino effect, how this caused this, caused this, caused this, caused this. And you think about it, this domino effect goes back even further. It goes all the way back to the statement that was made in 1 Samuel uh, 28 again. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it, it says here in verse 18, Samuel speaking to King Saul here, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. 
So it stems all the way back to Saul's disobedience to the Lord at different times. And one of the major disobedience is when God clearly told him, I want you to take out the king of Amalek, destroy all of his people, all the possessions, animals, everything, it's got to go. And Saul only partially obeyed. So he did not obey the Lord in that. So the sad thing here we see again, this whole thing could have been avoided by obedience. That whole domino effect would not have happened, you know, had he been obedient to the Lord the entire time that he was the king. But because he disobeyed, this, this whole domino thing happened. And somebody said this, and it is true, and boy, we really need to take this to heart. They said, you never sin alone. We believe that lie, you know, that says my sin doesn't affect anybody else. But that is not true. This passage shouts that loud and clear. I mean, look how many people were affected by Saul's disobedience. This whole line of dominoes as it's falling and falling and falling. And it could have all been prevented. So we can see from this, you know, that that our sin too can have that domino effect. Where someone that we know, we might... We might force them to make life or death choices like this armor bearer because of what we did, you know. This should cause us, you know, to look at sin differently. Sin is extremely dangerous. You know, the devil tempts us to play with sin. It's not a big deal. It's not going to hurt anybody. You can do this. You can get away with it. All the lies that he tells us when we're being tempted, you know. But we need to remember this, this story here that sin is extremely dangerous. Look how many lives were lost, how many homes were destroyed. People ran away and left everything behind. Their whole life has changed because of the sin of this man, his disobedience to the Lord. So it can be, we can, in our own life, as we, we go into sin and, and believe the lies the devil tells us, it can be like setting landmines for other people to step in because they're affected by the roads and the paths that we choose to go down. <clears throat> I was thinking about this, you know. <clears throat> Excuse me. Dad could be walking down a path that he knows uh, there, there's dangerous snakes there, they're poisonous, and he knows they're, they're really close by to that, but he's not worried because he knows they're there and he knows how to avoid them, at least so he thinks. But without him knowing it, his young son might follow him down the path one day and get bit by those poisonous snakes and possibly face death. And all of that because of the path that his dad chose to go down. So we must be very careful in how we live our life. If we choose to go down the path that leads to sin, we could cause a domino effect that could severely, severely damage the ones that we love. So we, we've got to think that one through. I know the enemy's constantly telling us it's not a big deal. Do not believe those lies. They are lies from the enemy. Verse 8 goes on in our passage here. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain on the battlefield there that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. Now this is something they would normally do after a battle. They would go through uh, the dead soldiers that they conquered. They'd loot them for whatever they could find. And on this particular day, they found quite a treasure. They found King Saul's body. Uh, verse 9, it says, They cut off his head and they stripped off his armor. They sent word throughout the land of the Philistines. And here's what they told them to do. 
proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. And it appears here that Saul was right to be concerned about torture because when these guys couldn't do anything else to torture him because he was already dead, they decided to at least cut off his head. <clears throat> these Philistines must have been so excited, you know, because here is Saul who has been defeating them and chasing them for 40 years. And now they were able to say they finally defeated King Saul. 40 years, that's a long time. So that, that is, that's the grace of the Lord, 40 years worth of grace. And finally the Lord said, we gotta deal with this. So notice here that the Philistines, they wanted this victory to be announced in the temple of their idols, their false gods. So they're, they're basically bragging, you know, that our gods defeated the Israelites and their God. And that's the way they saw it. So that's why you see them wanting to declare it so loudly right in the temple of their idols. So you think about it, this is another domino that falls down due to Saul's disobedience. Now it's affected the pagans who believe that their false gods and their idols are very worthy to follow. I mean, look at the victory they gave us, right? So we think this through, you know, our obedience can even affect those who are very lost. Is that really possible? Yes. You know, that means that it gives them confidence to keep living their immoral and godless life. So yes, it appears that way that our sin can even encourage the lost to continue going down their path. You know, this passage really shows us how dangerously far the impact of our sin and disobedience can go. Verse 10 goes on. Then they put his armor, this is Saul's armor they had taken off of him, they put it in the temple of the Ashtoreths, more of their false gods, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. So they, they put his body up on this wall of a city for everybody to see. So his body here and his armor became trophies on the wall of his enemies. Think about that. By fastening his body to the wall of the city, they were mocking the armies of Israel and the God of Israel, by the way. This was an intimidation tactic they would do to scare the enemy and put fear in them. It goes on in verse 11. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead, which is a, a town of Israel, when they heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and they traveled all night. Look at the sacrifice these guys went through. And they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan. And they came to Jabesh and they burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh. And then look what they did, they fasted seven days. So why did these, these men from Jabesh Gilead go through all of this trouble and risk their own lives, you know, to go get Saul's remains and the bodies of his sons? And if you remember back in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, we went through this story that the leader of the Ammonites, he had come to this place, Jabesh Gilead, this town, and he had threatened these people. And he said, if you will make a covenant with me, I will do that, but the requirements for this covenant is you're gonna to have to take out the right eye of all of your men. So they threatened them with that very cruel thing. And remember, Saul heard about this, and he wasn't king yet. It was just before they made him king. But when Saul heard about it, he rallied many troops together from Israel. And he got them to go and rescue these people from the Ammonites at that time. 
So these men here at this town, they were extremely grateful to Saul for rescuing them back then. So they must have figured, you know, we owe this to King Saul. We've got to go get his remains and the remains of his sons. It's a very honorable thing they did. You know, we're told here too, kind of interesting thing. It says they burned their bodies, but we're not told why. It was very unusual for them to do this in Israel. They, they normally just buried the bodies. So some people think that maybe it's because the bodies were, were mutilated and that's why they didn't bury them. But, you know, I'm wondering if it was to prevent anyone else from coming to steal them back and use them for more humiliation and mockery against Israel. You know, we're not given any reason in the passage, so it's kind of left to speculation there. Uh, verse 13 goes on then, when they took their bones and buried them, uh, again, that was the thing they were doing to honor them. Uh, they, they also fasted these seven uh, days, it says. So here are these guys who, who really felt like they owed something to King Saul. They felt loyal to him. You know, they, they honored him and his family by the actions that they took here. And uh, although Saul had made so many bad decisions in his life, you know, they caused him to end up like such a mess that he was. There were some good things that Saul did when he first started out. And remember, you know, that he had a good beginning. He had a lot of potential. You know, he just didn't end well at all. So it's very important for us to get that lesson too, that we need to end well. You know, unfortunately, Saul's life of starting off so well, uh, it just kept going further and further down as more time passed. And, and the picture of his life is a strong reminder, reminder to us of how important it is that we finish well. Remember here what Saul was like as we think back over his life. God called him to be the king of Israel. He anointed him, even filled him with the Holy Spirit. He was very humble when he started out. Remember, he was hiding. They couldn't even find him at the one point. But his life and his testimony ended up being ruined. He started to go down the moment he made the decision to be disobedient to God. Man, does that speak volumes to us. In Saul's mind, he decided to partially obey the Lord. And he thought, you know, that should be good enough. And he deceived himself into believing that. He'd obey in the parts that were easy, but when it would cost him something or he just didn't want to do it, then he would partially obey. And how many Christians today have that same attitude, that same mindset, you know? But in the eyes of the Lord, partial obedience is the same as disobedience. Man, we really need to get that down. Don't let the enemy trick us in that one. God does not accept 50% obedience. One of the things I think of is, would your boss accept 50% obedience, you know? Do they expect total obedience or partial? You know, the boss said, I told you to do this and this and this. And you said, well, I did the one. I didn't feel like doing the other. That's okay, right? You're good with that. Yeah, try that one with the boss, you know? Yeah, the Lord is, is much greater than any boss we're ever going to have, right? So you think about Saul here. He ended up being a trophy in his enemy's temple. Wow. And for any believer today who decides that partial obedience for God is good enough and that God should be happy with that, you will end up being a trophy for the devil too, our enemy. Because the Bible tells us our enemy is walking around seeking whom he may devour. And those are the kind of people that the devil's looking to go after. Partial obedience works just fine for him. You know, Jesus told us this. He said, I have come that you might have life more abundantly. Now that speaks of not just eternal life later on, but also about having a better quality of life right now. 
But you think about it, that's not going to happen unless we walk in obedience to the Lord. You know, that's, that's the place that we all should want to be. You know, sure, we're going to have our struggles with sin. We've got the flesh with us, and we still have those fights. But we're supposed to make a conscious decision that I am not going to partially obey the Lord. I am going to completely obey him in everything he shows me. And you know, it's so sad when you hear people say things like this. I can't believe this person started out so good and he was living such a godly life and he had so much going for him. And then at the end, it ended up such a mess. You know, when we look at Saul's life, we're learning more of what not to do than what to do. And man, you hate to be that kind of lesson for somebody else, you know? Now this goes right, the story goes right into the next book of 2 Samuel. So we're gonna jump in here and catch a little bit more of the story. Verse one, it says, Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, so Saul had had died, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, remember the battle he had in the story before that, and it says, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag, so he had come back to his home at that point, was there for two days. Then it says, on the third day while he was home, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. So he knows this guy that David's going to be the next king. So he runs to him and he gets down before him, prostrates himself, shows his humbleness now to him. And he's come and he's got a a mission in his mind. Now notice something here. It tells us when this was taking place. Uh, David was at his war. Uh, Saul Saul was at his battle. So we can see here that David and his men... They were busy fighting the Amalekites around the same time that the Philistines were busy attacking King Saul and his men. So that kind of explains why we don't see David showing up and saving the day in the story when all Israel was being attacked. Because you're thinking, man, David's got a heart for Israel. Where is the guy? Well, he was, he was taken away for a while because God was going to fulfill this prophecy about King Saul having the kingdom torn away from him and Israel put under the Philistines. It mentions here this guy showing up with the torn clothes and having dust on his head. Those are signs of mourning. So this shows that the news that he was bringing was not going to be good news. Verse 3 goes on. David said to him, where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Well, when a guy says he escaped from somewhere, you know, that's not good either. There's not a good, good story there. So David was asking him, you know, where are you bringing this bad news from? You obviously have some bad news to share, and I just want to know where you're coming from. And the man responded, I've come from the camp of Israel. And then he's going to give him the really bad news in verse 4. Then David said to him, how did the matter go? He's thinking, if you were right there in the camp, you must have seen the whole thing. So he's, he doesn't, hasn't heard the story yet, maybe he hasn't heard all the details. So he said, how did the matter go? Please tell me. He wants to know. And notice the way David even said that. You know, he kindly asked the guy to explain what he saw. He said, please tell me. To me, this shows me David's heart has been changed. Remember, we saw that before when he came back from his backslidden state. His heart is softened now. He seems more humble. He could have, he could have demanded this guy, you know, by the tip of a sword to tell me what you know. But he asked him very kindly to do that. So this man tells him that many soldiers of Israel had died, including Uh, King Saul and his son, Jonathan, because he says there, uh, he answered David, he said, the people have fled from the battle, so people were running away, 
Many of the people are fallen and dead. So a lot of people died from this. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are also dead. So that was news to David here. And you know, when, when David heard this about Jonathan, it must have really been painful to him. If you remember, David and Jonathan were very close. You know, they had spoken even about their future. How that when David became king, Jonathan was looking forward, you know, to serving under him. And they both agreed with that. They thought, yeah, that's going to be really good, you know. Uh, when, when the Lord gets a hold of this thing and puts David in place, Jonathan was excited to be with King David because he knew King David loved the Lord like he loved the Lord. So he was looking forward to that. And now David's given the news that Jonathan will not be there for that. His life was taken also. So it goes on with verse 5. So David said to the young man who told him this, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? So David's asking, do you have any evidence to verify your story? It says, then the young man who told him said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, <laughs> how'd you happen to be by chance by be there, you know? Uh, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. So he, he saw the, the attack coming, coming after him. He says, now when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Interesting, an Amalekite. He said to me again, please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. So this guy sees that Saul was mortally wounded when he came upon him. Now, <clears throat> we look at this, we just saw the story at the end of 1 Samuel, now we see this one, and it looks like there's, there's two different accounts of Saul's death. And some people even look at this guy maybe making some of this stuff up. But you know, I don't think these things are, are against each other, I think they complement each other if you think this one through. So you know, as you put the two stories together, here's what looks like what happened. Apparently Saul fell on his sword and the armor bearer thought that Saul's dead or he's gonna be dead in a minute here. So the armor bearer then kills himself. But apparently Saul couldn't even kill himself because this guy comes by and he's still hanging on to his spear, probably thinking I gotta drag myself away or hide or something because this is gonna be terrible. So this Amalekite comes along and Saul pleads with him to kill him and the Amalekite gladly obliges apparently. So it goes on in verse 10, his story is, this Amalekite says, I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. So this is the physical evidence that he has to prove that the king is dead because these are things that a king would wear into battle and you're not gonna get him away from the king unless he's dead and probably all of his, his bodyguards and everybody else is dead around him. So he did have the physical evidence to prove that. But what do you think of this guy's statement too when he says, I have brought them here to my Lord. So he's bringing his own trophies back to the King David and there's something going on in the background that we're not told yet. So we'll see this as we go on. Verse 11, therefore, David took hold of his own clothes and he tore them and so did all the men who were with him. Now this was a sign, you know, of the morning that was going on in their hearts, a picture that their hearts are torn 
and that's why they ripped their clothes to show this. David and all of his men did this too. So they're all hurting because of the, the death of King Saul and Jonathan. Verse 12 goes on, it says, and they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son. And here's what it says, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. They, they were weeping not only for the death of these guys, but also because of what this did to the people of Israel and also the house of Israel. They knew there was a great uh, damage that took place that day against God's people and God's nation. And it says, because they had fallen by the sword. So David and his men, they were mourning very deeply you know, over this loss for the nation of Israel. And it shows us where the heart of David and his men were. You know, they had been living among the Philistines at this point still in Ziklag. But David had repented of his running away from the Lord. And his heart was once again strongly back with Israel. So yes, you think about this, naturally speaking, you think David and his men would rejoice when they heard that Saul has been killed. Because that means he's not going to be hunting us anymore. He was hunting them for 10 years. And now you find out that the guy that's hunting you, he's no longer on the planet. So you would think they would be going, yes, finally, you know. But instead, when they heard the news, their hearts were broken. That's a soft heart. The Lord's been working on them. And this young man who brought the news to David, I bet he was very surprised at their reaction. (laughs) He was probably expecting to see a victory celebration, you know. He probably assumed that they'd be very happy to hear that King Saul was dead and they didn't have to worry about Saul chasing him anymore. Verse 13, it says, Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? You're going to verify this again. And he answered, I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. The Lord is making it very clear that we know this guy was an Amalekite. And this is so ironic, and I think that's why the Lord wants to see it. This is one of the biggest mistakes that Saul ever made by not completely obeying the Lord and wiping out all the Amalekites. You know, and lo and behold, who is it who actually delivers the death blow to Saul but an Amalekite? Wow. That sends shivers down to you when you think about that, you know? And the Amalekites here, they're a very important picture for us. They picture the flesh and they picture sin. So we get a huge message here that if we don't kill the sin in our life, it will eventually kill us. Strong message we see here. Verse 14, so David said to him, how was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Whoa. You know, if this guy wasn't concerned about bringing this news to David before this moment when he saw the guys weren't really rejoicing that Saul died, I'm sure that he was beginning to question how good of an idea this was now when David asked him this question. He'd originally hoped that David was going to reward him for killing King Saul, but he apparently didn't realize that David had such a respect for Saul as God's anointed king. Remember, David even turned down a number of opportunities he had to kill Saul himself because of that respect for the Lord and the Lord's anointing on Saul's life. And now he's asking this guy how he wasn't afraid to kill a man who's been anointed by God. Whoa, I'm sure that guy wished he could just shrink away and go hide in a hole somewhere. Uh, Verse 15, then David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. 
And, and David said this to him, your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David had this guy executed for killing God's anointed king. In David's mind, and rightfully so, Saul, since he was anointed by the Lord, he was the Lord's problem, and it was up to the Lord to deal with Saul when he was ready. That was not something that anyone had a right to rush. So David saw this man as interfering with God's plan for his anointed, and that's why he had him executed. You know, and David explains this thinking in 2 Samuel chapter 4, if you want to turn forward a couple pages. Uh, thankfully, the Lord has this written down for us to see. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 10, David here is talking and he says, When someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, that's this Amalekite, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. So David had figured out this guy's deception. You know, he clearly announces that this guy brought this on himself. Your blood is on your own head. And David knows this guy wasn't trying to help Saul out as much by giving him a mercy killing as he was trying to get a big reward from David. Wow. So David already had figured out this guy is just trying to deceive me. So in the passage of verse 17, then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son, and he told them, to teach the children of, Israel, of Judah the song of the bow is called. And that's what he titled it. And indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. So this song that was written here by David was written to express David's sorrow over the loss of Saul and Jonathan. And we're not really sure, we're not told why he titled it the song of the bow, but it appears that Jonathan liked to use the bow when he was in a battle. So we're not sure if that was a reason or not, but it probably was focusing more on Jonathan here. And, you know, David said, you need to tell your children this song, teach it to them. So he wanted this to be taught to the next generation of Israel. The important lesson that comes out of this song, a very humbling one, how believers should react to the death of someone, even one that lived a bad life like Saul did. So this is a very important lesson for us. It appears that he, this book of Jasher that he mentions was probably a book that they had put stories or songs about Israel's rulers and leaders. We don't have that today, but that's probably what he's referring to when he says, I want you to put this in that book. So whenever Israel's history is told, whenever the leaders are remembered, remember this story. He wanted to honor uh, the death of King Saul and his son Jonathan. So verse 19, it starts out, the beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. And when he says the beauty of Israel, he's referring to King Saul. So David was looking past all the bad things that Saul had done and still remembered, you know, how handsome, how tall, how strong Saul was at the beginning, if you remember the description we were given of him. And for David's part, you know, this is a very good attribute, to look for the good in people. And David seemed to have that about him. And he says here, the beauty of Israel is slain in your high places, how the mighty have fallen. And when he says the mighty here, he's referring to King Saul and Jonathan, and all the brave soldiers who died in that battle. Verse 20, he says, tell it not in Gath, and that's the, uh, these are the, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Those were the cities in Philistine. And he said, this song is not to be for them. He said, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. 
So he said, this song is basically, he's telling them, this song is for mourning, it's not for celebration. Remember, this must be something that uh, the young ladies and daughters did when the men came back from battle. Remember that song of David that the ladies were singing and seemed to go on for a long time. Everybody keeps bringing that up. Well, he knows that the daughters of Philistines are now the ones dancing in the streets and celebrating. He said, this song is not for them. It is not to be a song of celebration. So verse 21, he goes on with, O mountains of Gilboa, let there be, and that's where the battle took place, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty is cast away here, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. So David calls for a drought to be in that area where the battle took place. Almost like he's asking the Lord to curse that place where they died. You know, it's kind of like since it costs the lives of these men, then may all the plant life there die too. Let it be a place of death since that's what it was. You know, so it's kind of like let it sow what it has been reaped, reap what it has been sowing here. And he mentions here that the shield of the mighty is cast away. And it's an interesting picture when they were in battle, of course, they had their shield to protect them. It's one of their weapons. But when you were in the battle for such a long time, that shield's going to get heavier and heavier, and you're going to need to keep your strength. So there came a point in time where they would cast the shield aside so they had more strength to keep fighting, you know. So that's what he's referring to here. And then he says that Saul's shield wasn't anointed with oil. So it's kind of like at the end of the battle, they're not going to gather his shield and clean it up and re-oil it for the next battle. It's just going to lay there with the dirt, the blood on it, and that's the end, you know, of that. So verse 22, it says, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, and talk about the strength here of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and that was what apparently Jonathan liked to use in battle, that bow. And the sword of Saul did not return empty. So he's saying these men had fought well in battle and they had did some damage before they died. Verse 23, Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives and in their death, they were not divided. So he's saying they were together. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. So this is saying that Saul and his son Jonathan were together in their lives and they fought side by side in the battle when they died. And you think about their relationship from what we've seen. You know, most of their relationship that was, that was still there was due to Jonathan, who had a deep love for the Lord. You know, even when, when Saul mistreated Jonathan at times, you still see Jonathan right here fighting at dad's side, you know, even in the battle there. And, and he mentions here that both Jonathan and Saul were brave. They were strong warriors. They were very skilled at fighting and at combat. Verse 24 says, O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. So he's reminding the women here, you know, don't think about the bad decisions he made at the end of his life. Honor the man for the good that he did do. While he was the king there, these people benefited from that, you know. He fought the Philistines for 40 years and was able to keep them at bay. So the Israelites could enjoy some prosperity through all of that. And David is saying, be thankful for those things. Verse 25, it says, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. And David honors Jonathan here as a mighty soldier. Then he says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. He really is focusing in on Jonathan here now. And he calls him his brother. He says, you have been very pleasant to me. 
Your love to me was more wonderful, surpassing the love of women. And David honors Jonathan here as a great and dear friend of his. He even calls him his brother, which was a tremendous compliment in those days because he was saying that he loved Jonathan as one of his own family, his own bloodline. You know, that was quite an honor back then to say such a thing. And this love that David speaks of here, he's speaking of a very sacrificial love, a very other-centered kind of love. That's the kind of love that's expected to be within a marriage. That's the kind of love that mothers show for their children. And Jonathan had showed that kind of selfless love toward David. And David appreciated that, and he missed that, and he was mourning over that. And in verse 27, he ends it by saying, how the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. Meaning, these guys won't be fighting anymore. Their weapons are done. So he ends with the sad loss, you know, that Israel had just experienced. And remember that this loss they experienced all stems back to Saul's deliberate disobedience to the Lord. So we're reminded again to take the Lord seriously, not to play games with the Lord, but to obey him completely. Let's pray. Father, we know that you love us so much. You put up with us for such a long time, Lord, and we thank you for the day that you brought the truth to us, that Jesus died for us, and we can trust him, and our sins are completely removed. And Lord, we can't thank you enough for that great sacrifice. Lord, thank you for the strong word you give us here, that we need to avoid sin. It's deadly, it's dangerous. And Father, we thank you for these strong reminders. Father, if there's someone here today that the devil's been tempting very hard, and been trying to trick them and to just do a sin because it won't affect anyone. I pray today, Lord, your word woke them up. I pray your word woke all of us up, that we might be very sensitive to your spirit. We might be very hard against sin, seeing it as ugly and wicked as it is. Father, we thank you for that love you have shown us even this day from your word. And Lord, we pray if there's anybody here today who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray you would wake them up to that fact as well, that they need Jesus. We all do. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And only because of your love and sending your son Jesus do we have opportunity to come to you and have our sins completely removed so we can have fellowship you with you for all eternity. So thank you, Lord. I pray today your spirit would move in a powerful way among all of us. We give ourselves to you afresh. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' precious and powerful name, amen.